at the subject this morning, the victory of the crucifixion. And we're going to do a couple lessons on this first one today. You'll notice from your bulletin outline, the first thing I'm going to address is the fact that Jesus was not a victim in all that came his way. There are certain religious teachings which depict Jesus and his cross work as being that of a victim. Webster defines victim as a person who has been attacked, injured, robbed, or killed by someone else. A person who is cheated or fooled by someone else. Someone or something that is harmed by an unpleasant event. One that is acted on and unusually adversely affected by a force or agent. Okay, there's many definitions there. Now, some of this is applied to Christ, certainly in the sense that Jesus was acted on by force. But even this, as we're going to see momentarily, has to be tempered with what we know about Jesus' arrest and trial. You can't just bring a blanket definition from a secular source and apply that to Christ. The Catholic Baltimore Catechism defines the sacrifice of the Mass in question number 358. They ask the question, what is a sacrifice? Answer, a sacrifice is the offering of a victim by a priest to God alone and the destruction of it in some way to acknowledge that he is the creator of all things. A couple questions later, again, question 360 Why is the Mass the same sacrifice as the sacrifice of the cross? Answer, the Mass is the same sacrifice as the sacrifice of the cross because in the Mass, the victim is the same and the principal priest is the same, namely Jesus Christ. Now, apart from the misuse of the label victim here as applied to Jesus, I cannot ignore as well the biblical prohibition of re-sacrificing Christ, even ceremonially, as is done in the Mass. Maybe you don't know, uh, since we're not Roman Catholics, maybe you don't know that that's what is being presented every uh, Lord's Day in the Mass. Why would we be opposed to this um, ceremonial re-sacrificing of Christ. Well, the scripture says, Hebrews 9 verse 12, he, speaking of Christ, did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 9 verse 12. Once for all, notice the phraseology here, and an eternal redemption means it's good forever. You don't have to duplicate it. You don't have to redo it. It's once for all and it's for all time. And then what about this text in Hebrews 6? Very scary text. Verses 4 and following. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, 
who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, it's impossible to be brought back to repentance because, here it is, to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Well, that's the Mass. And that is every Lord's Day in the Roman Church. They say, well, we're just... They, they believe they're actually sacrificing Christ. Ceremony all over again. And that wafer and that cup, they believe that that is the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus that is there in those elements. Now, we're going to have the Lord's table here in our second service. Well, we don't believe that the bread that we eat or the cup that we drink is the real body and the real blood of Jesus. We think it's really bread and it's really wine or grape juice and it symbolizes the body and blood of the Lord as Jesus initiated that ordinance the night of Passover. We're not re-sacrificing him. We're not thinking of that at all. It's a memorial service. We're remembering his sacrifice that happened many years ago. Now secondly, what is the biblical evidence that Jesus was not a victim of the cross? Well, there's a number of categories. Firstly, his death was preordained by God the Father. If you're going to have something that's preordained by God, that's a surety. It's going to happen. It's coming. How do you categorize that with victim? When Peter and John were released by the Jewish council unharmed, after being threatened not to teach any longer in Jesus' name, Acts 4 verse 18, they reported to the church at Jerusalem. And the church prayed this. Here's their prayer. I'm thankful it's in the scripture. It's in the book of Acts chapter 4. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. That's that conspiracy that we've been studying for weeks. Now the next phrase. They did... This is Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, Jews. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Acts 4, verse 27 through 29. See what what, uh, Luke is writing here in the book of Acts? He's saying what happened was ordained by God. these people that were evil. Now, God didn't make them evil to do this. They did their own thing. But in doing their own thing, they were fulfilling what God had ordained from time past. Again, Jesus' own confession. That ought to be worth something, right? His own words. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So you have this whole idea of condescension, of incarnation. Why did he come? He's coming down to do the will of God. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, 
but raise them up in the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 6, verse 38 through 40. Or again, therefore when Christ came into the world, the writer of Hebrews says, He said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, referring to the animal sacrifices, but a body you prepared for me. Well, why would God prepare a body for his son? Well, he goes on. A body you have prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Well, that's one reason. There's something defective about the animal sacrifices. Hebrews 10, verse 5 and 6. And then in verse 10... The writer goes on to say, And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10, verse 10. Well, why did God prepare a body for His Son? So it could be sacrificed. God can't die. Spirits can't die. But a human body can die. So that's why the body was provided. And all of this speaks of God's pre-planning the event of Jesus' entrance into the world to die for his people's sins. So, there's nothing accidental here. There's nothing circumstantial here. Everything is intentional here. He's not a victim. Number two, Jesus was in control of his own death. John 10. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. There shall be one flock and one shepherd, Jew and Gentile together, in the church. The reason my Father loves me, now get this, Jesus is talking, this is his testimony. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. John 10, verse 15 through 18. Does that sound like victim to you? Yeah, I know. They arrested him, tried him, carried him out of the city, took him out of the city, nailed him to a tree. But he's saying, I lay down my life. I have control of that. And not only do I lay it down, I have authority to take it back up again. When Peter impulsively whipped out his sword to defend Jesus and to prevent the authorities from arresting him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? We're back to that preordination. John 18, verse 11. And Matthew's account gives more detail. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father? And he will at once. Put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say, It must happen this way. Does that sound like victim to you? 
That's Matthew 26, verse 52 through 54. A legion is 6,000 soldiers. So 12 legions is 72,000 angels. And he uses the expression more than, more than 12 legions. So pick your number. (laughs) And whatever number you choose, Jesus' point to Peter was, I don't need you to defend me. If I do not want to be arrested, if I do not want to be tried, I have an army of angelic forces to rescue me. But I am following the path laid out for me in God's word by my Father. See, that's most important to Jesus, to do the Father's will. Pilate kind of got the same message when Jesus, before Pilate, would not answer his questions. And Pilate became irritated with Jesus. Do you refuse to speak to me? Says Pilate. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who has handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. John 19, verse 10 and 11. Does that sound like victim? Does that sound like Pilate has a case here that he makes a good point? You know, I'm the governor of Rome over this whole territory area. And my word is gospel. If I command you to be crucified, you're going to be crucified. You better start speaking to me. I like Jesus' statement. He took the wind out of his sail, out of Pilate's sail. Uh, Just so you know, Governor, you wouldn't have any authority over me unless it was given to you by my Father. He takes it back, back, back to the Father and the Father's will. Oh, and then there's this famous statement from the cross, as though we needed anything else to prove this. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous Man. Luke 23, verse 44 and following. Now, brethren, in all these accounts, there isn't even a hint of Jesus being a victim in his cross work. We don't see him being hauled away against his will, against God's will, or anything like that, and being forcibly Detained in any way. We see him actually volunteering for the cross. And that is his great love for us. And then thirdly, to corroborate all this, the theology of the cross belies any notion of Jesus being a victim. Let me read a scripture again. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus, listen to this, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Luke 9, verse 51. 
Notice how it's tied. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, what does Jesus do? He resolutely sets his, his compass, can I say it that way, for Jerusalem. Now, wait a minute. There were many other cities, many other counties, many other countries to which he could have retreated. But Jerusalem was marked for his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. So he sets his mind to go there of all places. Again, Hebrews 10. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Talking about the Old Testament priest. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10, verse 11 through 14. You get the picture again that he's on a mission and the mission is to save his people and he's going to accomplish that and nothing's going to change that. Or again we read in Hebrews, For the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he, Jesus, became a priest with an oath, when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you're a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there has been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in their office. That makes sense, right? These guys got old, they died. So then a new priest had to come along and a new priest and a new generation to keep going on. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 7, 19 through 26. There is no idea of victim here in any of these verses. You get the idea that when he has accomplished his work of the cross and so forth, he's exalted. He's brought to the place of where he was heading all along. The exalted as the Savior, the only Savior of sinners. Exalted above the heavens. Now that brings us to the second point in our outline. Jesus, the victor at crucifixion. I know when you say that, it almost sounds weird, doesn't it? How could someone who's crucified be categorized as a victor? The world thinks he lost. He went up against Rome. He lost. He went up against the Jewish authorities of his own day. He lost. They put him on a cross. But there is that kind of victim mentality again. No, he's not a victim. He's a victor in crucifixion. How so? Well, number one, 
in his crucifixion, full, a pe- full payment for our sin was accomplished at the cross. Verse 13 of our text. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Notice the next phrase. He forgave us all our sins. Here's the goal all along. Colossians 2 verse 13. What's he saying? Well, Paul is saying spiritually dead people need to come alive. How can they come alive if it be true that they are dead in sins with the uncircumcision of a sinful nature? Uncircumcision here is referring to a fleshly heart, a heart that is um, resistant to God's will and stubbornly resistant to it. A heart that is full of sin. Uh, For example, in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, in our adult class last week, we learned about this. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer, God said to Israel's people. There's There's a stubbornness in your heart. That needs to be cut away. That's the circumcision that needs to be exercised. Or again... In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all of your heart and with all your soul and live. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. No one can love God and live for God while they have a fleshly heart, a sinful heart. And so God says, I'm going to cut that fleshly heart away and grant you a heart that beats after me. Now, only the atonement of Jesus' blood can accomplish this kind of heart circumcision because until then, Paul says we are possessed by, we have it in our text, the uncircumcision of a sinful nature. And that's the fleshly heart again. But with Jesus' full payment for sin, there's also a full pardon Let me read it to you. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. Isaiah 55 verse 7. The hymn writer Ronnie Freeman has it this way in his hymn. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and ten thousand beside. But it all begins with what? Pardon for sin and a peace. That endure. Peter, using another biblical word, the word redeemed, writes in his epistle, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious Blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 
Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 through 21. What is redemption? Well, it implies that something was there and it was lost or captured. Found or captured by another who became the new owner. And then the original owner comes along and redeems or buys back what was lost. Well, you know that in Adam all die. And it was Adam and Eve who listened to the serpent that said, Oh, you know, you won't die when you eat of the fruit of that tree. God knows you'll just become like God. They ate and they died. And humanity was lost and became possessed or captive by sin and by the evil one. In redemption, Christ is buying back sinners. Buying them back. Paying for them so that they can become part of his family. In Adam, all humanity died spiritually and they became alienated from God and allies of Satan including those who would later come back to God. Satan became their new master. And what a slave master he became. At one time, we too were foolish, the scripture says, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Well, that's a good description of humanity. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope or the assurance of eternal life. Titus 3, 3 through 7. That's redemption in operation. This transformation is radical. Just look across the page there. You're in Colossians chapter 1. Look across the page, verse 12 and following. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints... In the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1 verses 12 and following. And guess what? This forgiveness is forever. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account, speaking of Israel of old. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. I love that verse. If God said it, if he promised it, and you're part of that promise, he does not go back on his promises. He doesn't, I think I made a mistake. He doesn't change his mind. 
That's in Romans 11, 27 and following. And so we could say it this way, the payment is permanent. The payment is permanent. For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Or again, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. He's talking about the new covenant. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts. I will remember no more. Hallelujah. And where these have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sins. Of course, it's not needed. needed. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, verse 15 through 22. That's what he did on the cross. <clears throat> full payment. Full payment for sin at the cross. Which means there's nothing for you to pay. You know the idea of a balance. You put something on layaway. You put $50 down on it. It costs $150. You come back. And they say, oh, well, your balance is $100. Okay. And then you make another payment. You come back later and make final payment or whatever. There's no payment. Christ has paid it all. We sing him, Jesus paid it all, so all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it, white as snow. He did it, he did it, he did it. Not you in him in some kind of league or handshake. No, he did it all. Secondly, in our text, not only full payment, for sin at the cross, but full cancellation of the law's indictment of us for sin. Look at verse 14. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Verse 14. Let me ask this question. What is it, brethren, that gives... What is it that gives sin its power, its teeth, to bite us and to devour us? Paul answers, the sting of death is sin. Okay, yeah. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're reading about here in, first, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. That's 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, verse 56. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. What does that mean? Paul answers. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But 
Sin is not taken into account, that is, it's not chargeable when there's no law. Romans 5 verse 13. Simply put, there has to be a law broken for the definition of sin to be valid. John puts it this way in 1 John 3 verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, says John, sin is lawlessness. You're driving down the street, minding your own business, when suddenly a flashing red light appears in your rearview mirror. The officer approaches your stop vehicle and he asks, their usual question, do you know why I pulled you over? We're clueless. You have no clue. Well, you did not stop at the stop sign back there. The fact that you were in deep thought when you rolled through the stop sign is no excuse. And if he decides to write you a ticket, the fine is only valid if there is a law on the books which states that when approaching a stop sign in Michigan, the motorist must come to a complete stop before proceeding. In other words, you cannot be charged for a violation that isn't part of the vehicle code. That is Paul's point. That is John's point when it comes to the law of God. No one can be charged as a sinner unless he or she breaks the law of God. It is violating God's law which justly throws us into the class of sinners. In the sad commentary on humanity, however, since Adam's transgression is what Paul writes in Romans 3, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And then he picks up in verse 10 of that chapter, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now we know, I'm still reading scripture. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those that are under the law. (laughs) So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Romans 3, verse 19 and 20. That's the law's work. One of its works. The moral law of God is summarized in what we know as the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. No other gods before me. No disobedience to parents. No murder. No blasphemous use of God's name. No adultery, stealing, or covetousness, and so on. This is what Paul refers to in his phrase, verse 13 of our text. The written code that was against us. God says, but you're not there. God says, don't do this, but you do it. Or he says, do this, and you don't do it. 
Either way, guilty, 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 guilty. So how's the law against us? Because of our inability to obey it with perfection. The law of God can only do one thing towards the lawbreaker, and that's to condemn us as such. Oh, and it does a fine job. You see, God does not, he cannot lower the standard so that you can comply. Sometimes we hear about school districts eager to maintain records that show a high percentage of graduates. They'll sometimes lower the standard so more students can reach the goal. But it's not righteous to rewrite the standards in order to be more inclusive. It's not fair to those that are obeying the rules. So God does not play those games. Either we comply or we die. The wages of sin is death. And this is the case for every person who refuses God's own Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul says of Jesus that he canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now by canceled here, Paul does not mean that Jesus did something illegal. Like sweeping your offense under the carpet. Like choosing to look the other way when what is over here is a very sinful and rebellious heart. That's how sinners handle trouble. But this would be a breach of justice, which God cannot do. So, canceled, canceled the regulations. Canceled is explained in context by the statement, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. He took it away by meeting the requirements of the law for sinners. You go down to traffic court to pay your fine for failing to come to a complete stop. And when they check your little ticket stub, the cashier says, Oh, oh, um, that's been canceled. You look a little confused. You say, What? Why? Well, looks like someone came in and paid it for you. The fine for breaking God's law is not monetary. It is lethal. It's lethal. It'll cost you your life. Let me read it for you. Ezekiel 18, verse 4. For every living soul belongs to me, says God. The Father as well as the Son, both alike belong to me. And the soul who sins is the one who will die. And since the scripture says we've all sinned, guess what? We're all going to die and we're all in trouble. Unless, (laughs) unless, and here's the victory of Jesus' cross, unless you and I have someone else to pay this lethal fine. So John words it, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, 
We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 1 John 2, verse 1. I want you to notice that phrase, that it is Jesus' righteousness, as well as his dying, that is essential in salvation. And it is this fact that John pins his assurance on. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, verse 2. Paul puts it this way, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 and 6. Okay, what qualifies Jesus for this singular honor? Or to ask it another way, why aren't there many mediators? Because of Jesus alone we learn this. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, which means he's not a sinner, exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 7 verse 26. Perfect obedience is what the law of God demands, so perfect obedience is what Jesus gave. And in this he fulfilled all the righteous living we should have done, but didn't. And in his death he provided the full payment for sins that we did commit. So it's a two-pronged work. Paying for our sin and living righteously under the law perfectly. Both of those things are essential. That's why he's the only mediator that can pull this off. And then lastly, we have the statement in verse 15, a full disarmament and triumph over the evil spiritual power. Now, I don't have time to do justice to this now, and I don't want to cheat on it. So I'm going to take this up in two weeks. Next week is Mother's Day, and I want to talk about the women of the crucifixion, the women of resurrection. So in closing, I just want to say that I think we can all see that Jesus is a complete Savior. By that I mean that whatever was required of him by God the Father Whatever the law demanded in order to wipe the slate clean of our guilty hearts, Jesus did it. He did it. No stone was left unturned for every saved person. Everything necessary for forgiveness was accomplished totally by Jesus. There was, there is nothing left for you to do. Except to trust him with your soul. And guess what? Even that faith to trust him is a gift from God, along with the gift of repentance. Now, I have to admit, we are not used to people being that generous, that selfless, that loving, that they would sacrifice themselves for us. But Jesus was that kind of person. 
and the only qualified person to redeem us from the bondage of sin. Oh, how he loves you and me, says the hymn writer. Oh, how he loves you and me. The writer of Hebrews tells us of his credentials. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Hallelujah. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. That's the gospel, folks. That is the gospel. Jesus is the one who intercedes for us and does everything that the law requires, even dying. The soul that sins going to die, so he went to the cross to die for our infractions. Do you know Christ is Savior this morning? I hope you do, but if not, today's your day. Paul says, if you hear his voice speaking to your heart, don't harden your heart. Those people in Jesus' day did. They were stubborn and they were resolute and they opposed God and they mocked him at the cross. We read it in our meditation reading. Jesus said to them, yeah, that's because you're children of the devil and not children of God. I hope you're not children of the devil. If you are, you need to come out of that kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and come into the kingdom of light. By confessing your sins and putting your faith and trust in Jesus, he'll do the work. He'll bring you out of that kingdom of darkness and put you in the kingdom of light. It's a marvelous thing to know that you're forgiven and safe in Christ, that you have a mediator that argues your case. We have a slanderer, too, that slanders us before the throne of God. His name is Diabolos, the slanderer, Satan. But right there is Christ arguing the case for us. No, wait a minute. He's one of ours. I died for him. Yeah, he does do that. He has sinned. He will sin again, but I paid for it all. And I obeyed the law for him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess to thee this morning our great thanks to you for your work, your cross work. But also, as we've learned this morning, also for your righteous life. Jesus could say to the religious authorities of his day, which one of you accuses me of sin? And they had to stand mute. They had to be quiet. They had to be silent. They didn't have anything to say. There was no dirt to dig up. There was no mud to sling with regard to Jesus. Because he always did that which was according to the Father's will. He obeyed perfectly. The world can sometimes see, you know, the good life of Jesus. They see his wonderful teaching. But they don't have a clue as to how that righteousness can be part of their life through the power of forgiveness and cleansing. Now, Lord, what grieves us most is that we're not yet perfect in Christ. 
in the sense of our ongoing behavior. We continue to sin. But it is a grief to us because we're striving to live for Jesus and to live holy and exemplary lives. But we fail. And those failures are covered by the blood of Christ. Thank you for that. Our disobediences are covered by the obediences of the Lord Jesus. So you're a complete Savior. There's nothing left for us but to trust in you and to lean wholly on Jesus' name. Thank you for your cross work. Yes, thank you for your exemplary life. And I pray that you will help us to really get a grasp of this and be very appreciative. And as we come into our next hour, as we gather around the Lord's table and remember his sacrifice, Lord, may we rest easy in the truth that he gave from the cross. It is finished. It is finished. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.